It's been called the parable of the dishonest manager. Maybe you have a heading in your Bible that says the parable of the unjust steward. This is my favorite parable. I don't know if we're allowed to have favorites. I mean, it's all the word of God and it's all beautiful, but this one's my favorite, okay? It's fascinating to me, it's surprising to me, and it's wonderful in its application. And I think it might be the most controversial of all the parables. Because what is so challenging about the interpretation here is that it seems like Jesus approves of the main character who is dishonest with his master's resources. Okay, just a cursory reading like we did through the parable. It seems like Jesus is making a point with this dishonest manager and he's commending him somehow and that we are to be more like that but in a spiritual way. And so it's kind of, there's some controversy here. It sort of shocks you because when people act underhandedly like this man in the parable, we would not expect Jesus to point to that as any kind of example except a bad one. But he doesn't do that in this parable. And so I find it fascinating. Let's walk through it together. Let's see what God has for us here. The text divides neatly into two sections. So verses 1 through 8, you have the parable. And then verses 9 through 13, you have the application. So, Luke 16, verse 1. <clears throat> Jesus also said to the disciples... There was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. Now, if you have not been here recently, we have been looking at parables of Jesus so chapter 15, we saw a number of parables. Uh, we saw a sheep which was lost and then found, and a coin that was lost and then found, and a son that was lost and then found. And here in chapter 16, the parables continue as Jesus will teach two of them involving money. Now, Jesus teaches about money often, a lot more than I am comfortable with because I think the modern church has a black eye when it comes to money and giving, mostly because of some disingenuous teachers on television who are greedy and who uh, make it seem like the Christian church is only interested in wealth. So I tend to shy away from it. I don't talk about it very much. I think in the almost 11 years I've been here, we have passed the plate maybe three times. Okay? There is an offering box in the back. I don't talk about it very much. You are to give as the Lord has blessed you, but I don't like it because I think there is a stereotype, an unfair stereotype about the church. But Jesus talked about money quite a bit. In fact, out of 39 parables, nearly one-third of them involve money. Now, what's significant about Jesus teaching about money is he often uses it as a gauge to test one's spiritual condition. In fact, we heard an example of that with the reading 
of the rich young ruler. If you want to know what a person loves the most, look what they spend their money on. What are they investing in? Money becomes a great way to see a person's heart, and Jesus uses this kind of teaching and the subject of money as a vehicle to reveal what is in the heart. So, here we are again with a parable and Jesus, and it involves money. Now, there are two main characters in the parable. There is a rich man and his manager. And the parable begins with the rich man receiving word that his manager is wasting his possessions. So he summons him to tell him that he is relieving him of his duties. Now, a manager is someone who runs the affairs of another. And so this is an employee who would have authority over his master's resources. He would conduct business in his master's name. And he would be an indispensable part of the business. And as you can imagine, this requires the utmost level of trust. Now, we don't have all the details here. Jesus doesn't give us all the nitty-gritty. But what we discover, what seems clear to me at least, is that he's being let go because of a mismanagement of resources and not because of fraud. In other words, he's being fired not because he's a crook, but because he's being wasteful. That's verse 1. This explains why he's actually allowed to conduct a few more transactions rather than being immediately thrown out or having security called on him and escorted him down to the police station. So he's being accused of being wasteful in carrying out his duties. And in response, the master fires him. Clean out your desk. You're finished. Now, what we know about the ancient Near East is that this manager probably had a very envied position. He would have increased his social status by interacting daily with important people, various landowners, various businessmen, and he would have been entrusted with a lot of wealth. And we don't know what he did wrong, but maybe he just got a little carried away got a little too comfortable with the master's resources, you know, an extra expense here and there, maybe putting personal items on the company card, maybe being sloppy with the books. And he's going to be let go, but first the rich man wants to look at the numbers. So he says in verse 2, he says, Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So maybe the master wants to take a closer look. Now that he knows that there's been some impropriety, let's see if there's anything else to be concerned about. He wants to call him to account. So, up to this discovery, the rich man must have had a lot of trust in this manager. I mean, he managed the land, he managed the crops, he managed the assets, He managed the debts. He probably ran everything, including the food distribution to the various servants and workers. And now it is over. And from the manager's perspective, things are not looking good. 
he's losing his job. He's probably losing his home because he probably lived on the estate where he managed. And this would have been a full-time gig. So he's losing his income. He's losing his reputation because now people are going to hear about this. Not a good day for him. It is a devastating personal crisis. And in verse 3 it says, The manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me. I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. Now, details are important when you have a parable like this. And I think it's important sometimes what is not said. Now, notice there is no protest on the part of the manager. He's not appealing the decision. He's not trying to defend himself. No, you got it all wrong. I don't know who told you that, but it's not true. There's none of that. It's practically an admission of guilt. Instead of trying to keep his job and persuade his master, he immediately starts worrying about his future. And it says, he said to himself, now you do the same thing. When trouble comes, you start worrying. And your internal dialogue is like, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do about this personal crisis that I'm facing? And so he's working through his options He's had a really good job for a long time, and now it seems his options are few. Could he be hired as another manager somewhere else? Mm. Not if word gets around of what happened here. So he laments to himself his lack of options. He says in verse 3, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. So here was a white-collar worker in a blue-collar society. Most people worked in the fields, or they were fishermen, or they were day laborers. And apparently, he's unfit for any of those things. Maybe it was his age, or maybe he's just making excuses for himself. Maybe he has had such a higher class position that it's beneath him to do those things. We're not totally sure. But whatever the case, he finds himself in a hopeless situation and the fact that he mentions begging really shows how desperate the situation is. I mean, he's going to be tossed out. He's going to have nothing. And then in verse 4, he has a eureka moment. He says, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, this man who will soon be in need, he's going to need food, he's going to need a home, he's going to need resources. It seems that he's hours away from being homeless. He needs to act quickly, and he needs to come up with a plan. And he's decided, I've got an idea. And here's the point. He has decided 
he will use the brief time that he has remaining in his position to make provision for his future. That's kind of a long sentence. I'm going to say it again. He has decided in the brief time he has remaining in his position that he is going to make provision for his future. Verse 5, So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. So, this is his plan. The manager who's being let go because of incompetence is about to burn a bridge with his soon-to-be former employer. If there wasn't a bridge burned already, it seems like this is going to do it. And in a last-ditch effort to prepare for his future he uses his prominent position one more time. Remember, he's still in this position. The people coming to him still think he is in his position. And so he's like, I know what I'm going to do. Now, the scenario here is probably that these men rent land from the master and as payment to the master, they give some of their commodity to him. So kind of like paying rent. Someone wants to grow olives and sell olive oil, and a certain percentage is going to go to the landowner because he lets them use the land. That's probably the scenario here. Which is why you have these commodities as payment. So these would be bought, these would be sold, these would be exchanged. And what the manager does here for these men in debt is considerable. For the first one, who owes a hundred measures of oil, he cuts that debt down in half. 50% discount. I mean, who's going to pass up that deal, right? If your bank came to you and said, you know, we, we know you owe such and such on your property, I'll tell you what, if you, if you cut us a check today, we'll give you half off. So this is 100 measures of oil would be 900 to 1,000 gallons. In monetary terms, this would be three years' wages. So this is not a small number. This is not a petty deal. This is a big, big deal. 150 olive trees it would take. And doesn't it seem like he's doing it without his master's approval? I mean, isn't that the vibe you get when you read this? Notice the urgency. He says in verse 6, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Now, the debtor, he's not asking any questions. He doesn't want to know, Hey, wait a second, has your boss approved of this? He's like, where do I sign, (laughs) right? He can't sign that thing fast enough. 
He wants to get out of there. Transaction finished. So that's the first guy. Then verse 7, we have another one. And how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now this would be about a hundred, or sorry, a thousand bushels of wheat, which would take a hundred acres to produce and maybe eight to ten years of labor. Again, large quantities we're dealing with here. And he cuts that down by 20%. And that man can't sign quick enough either. Now, it's not clear why one man got a 50% discount, why another man got a 20% discount. Maybe it had to do with the type of commodity that they were dealing with. I have no idea. But it doesn't matter if we don't know those details because the big idea remains the same. He is offering them a great deal so that he can secure some friendships with them so that when he is tossed out on the street, he can come back to them and say, you remember that deal I gave you? You remember when I saved you thousands of dollars? Now, there are laws in the ancient world, just like there are laws in our world today. And this man could be getting himself into a lot of trouble because what he is doing here is called embezzlement. I looked up a definition just to make sure I had the right term here. Embezzlement is to steal or misappropriate funds placed in your trust. Okay, to steal or misappropriate funds placed in your trust. That seems to me exactly what he is doing. He's taking away from his master for his own personal benefit. Now, embezzling funds on top of incompetence as a manager, what might the penalty for a crime like that be? What will the master do when he hears about this? I mean, if he was mad before, he is going to be livid. You did what? He is probably going to press charges, I would imagine. Now, like many of the parables of Jesus, there are surprises. Don't you find the parables often have a surprise? And the first great surprise is his reaction to what the manager does here with his resources. He doesn't have him arrested. He doesn't have him taken out and flogged. Look at verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. (laughs) He commended him. Now, this is always surprising to me. Commended him? You mean he's not enraged? I mean, you know how much money this guy just lost him? Who would want to discover that what is owed to them has been cut in half by the very manager found to be wasting his possessions? 
So why does he commend him and not express outrage? I've read different commentaries. There are different uh, explanations that have been offered. I will just share them with you. Not necessarily that I believe these, but just, just so we have a fuller picture here. Perhaps the steward simply removed the interest charges that accumulated, and so he was not undercutting his master from getting what was originally owed to him. He just revised the bill according to interest. So that's one idea. Another idea is perhaps the steward removed his own commission sacrificing what would have been owed to him and not taking away from his master. And maybe he earned a different commission on the different commodities, and that's why you have a different percentage. Now, interesting thought, but it's hard to believe that he would have a 50% commission like that. You know, that's a lot of money. It just, that one seems far-fetched to me. I don't think we have a good explanation as to why other than what is already in the text, and that is the manager acted shrewdly and he is being commended for that. He doesn't commend him for taking from his bottom line, but for being shrewd. Now, shrewd is a word in the Bible that appears all the way back in Genesis and it's found throughout the Proverbs. It's not a negative or a positive word. It's very neutral, but it can be used for good or for evil. For example, the serpent in Genesis 3 is, being, is described as being shrewd, right? The serpent was more crafty or shrewd than the other animals in the garden. But the same word is used in the book of Proverbs, usually translated as prudent, in a positive way. The prudent man sees danger and takes refuge. The prudent person is thinking about the future and consequences, while the fool just staggers on by and doesn't even give it any thought. So prudent, the shrewd man, is, is planning for the future, and that is a positive thing. So the master is not commending him for discounting what was owed to him, but for using the resources available to him to provide a secure future for himself. And so the, you know what the boss is saying to him? Got to hand it to you. That was pretty clever. <laughs> that was pretty clever. I mean, he still might be mad. But the point Jesus makes here is that he commends him for being shrewd. He says, the, verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, and then Jesus' commentary, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now what does he mean by that? Well, let's establish who we're talking about here. The sons of this world, ESV, or your translation, actually ESV says world, yours might say age. Clearly it's a reference to unbelievers, okay? The sons of this age, the sons of this world, talking about people who this world is their home, they love this world, 
They belong to this world. And Jesus is comparing them with the sons of light, which is clearly a reference to believers. Children of God. Those whose home is not in this world, but is in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus uses this strange story of deceit and financial dishonesty to make a contrast between how those in this world operate with those who belong to the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is not commending the man's dishonesty, but his shrewdness. And he is telling the church, which is you and me, that we need to be more shrewd in how we think about the future. How we plan for the future. So he's saying the people in the world are more wise in planning for a temporary future than the children of God are planning for an eternity. That is the big idea of the parable. If a man will use whatever is available to him to secure a comfortable future, which only lasts a matter of years, and then he dies, then how much more should a believer use what is available to him for an eternity that Jesus says will never end? And Jesus says the unbelievers are better at this than you all. <laughs> this is the point. And now the application, verse 9. This is what Jesus wants you to do in light of that big idea. He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. <clears throat> so just as the dishonest manager used his resources to provide for his future, we as believers are to use the resources available to us to provide for our future. Not here, but eternally. He says we are to take the money of the world, which he calls unrighteous wealth. King James Version, unrighteous mammon. And use that money to make friends for ourselves. So, your money, your assets, your possessions, it's all part of this system that is passing away. And that can be used to make friends for yourself who will receive you into eternal dwellings. In other words, invest in making friends who will be standing at heaven's gate welcoming you in when you get there. <laughs> now, how do you do that? Well, I think it means you invest in kingdom enterprises you invest in ministries that are going out into the world and sharing the gospel you use your money to win people for eternity 
You invest in the kingdom of God and use wealth as a means to bring as a means to bring friends into that kingdom so that they are there to welcome you into your eternal reward. Did you know that you can't take any of this with you? Did you know that? Can't take any of it with you. Andrew Carnegie, one of the richest men in the history of America, multi, 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 multi millionaire, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, the newspapers when he died made a big deal about how much he left behind. Do you know how much he left behind? Does anybody know? All of it. <laughs> all of it. He left all of it behind. You cannot take anything with you, and yet most Christians are not shrewd in their use of their resources to invest in their future. And Jesus points out that the sons of this age prepare for the future, and they're doing a better job than we are. That's the point of this very strange parable. If Christians pursued the kingdom of God with the same vigor and zeal as the children of this world, pursuing profits and pleasure, which is only to be used for a short time, we would live in a very different world. Because our possessions, our resources, and our finances will all perish someday. None of it will remain. It will all be gone. Randy Alcorn has a wonderful little book called The Treasure Principle. I actually gave it out to members of our church years ago. It's a very concise and helpful book to get you to reorient your thinking about uh, your possessions and your money. And I love this picture he describes in the book. He says, imagine your home was in France and you came to the United States for one month to live here while they were renovating your home into a glorious mansion. While you were in the U.S., you stayed at the local Best Western until you were told you could return to your home. He says, you would be a fool to spend your time and energy furnishing the hotel room when it was not even your home. I mean, what a picture, right? Can you imagine all these movers coming in and bringing stuff into the Best Western and they're, 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 they're redoing the carpet and they're putting up works of art and all this stuff and it's like, you're checking out in a couple weeks. What are you doing? And yet many are investing all of their resources into this life. Unbelievers plan for the future. Do believers plan for eternity? That's the point. Jesus says those in the world are doing it better. Now money, as I said earlier, is a gauge by which we can measure what we are living for. I've heard it once said by a preacher, take out your checkbook and I can look through it and tell you where your home is, where your heart is. It's interesting, it's not prayer, it's not Bible reading, it's not church attendance. 
Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. Your heart follows after your treasure. And he says we are to store up our treasure in heaven. Verse 10, he says, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So according to Jesus, your money and resources are like a spiritual test. And he says that if you pass the test with that, you will be trusted with much more. Now, more what? I don't know specifically. More responsibility. More of what a a steward would do. More of what a manager would do. Maybe God's going to give you more and more to manage for Him. But our stewardship is measured by what you do with those resources. If you are faithful with little, you will be faithful with much. And it's not how much you have. Please understand this. I mean, don't think, well, if I get a, if I get a good income someday, then I'll start being faithful with it, of course, because I'll have extra. It's not about having much. It's about faithfulness in what you already have. Now, I know maybe some of you are on fixed incomes and money's very tight, month to month's very tight. But it's, it's not about what you possess necessarily, but it's about your level of commitment to the kingdom of heaven. It's about your love for heaven. It's about the character of the person. Are you unselfish, humble, generous, non-materialistic, committed to the kingdom with all of your heart? That is the issue. It's not an issue about how much money you have. It's about faithfulness with what you have. Now, Jesus ends this passage with a warning. A warning about who or what you are actually serving. Are you serving God with your stuff? Or are you serving stuff? And he says in verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, he doesn't say you should not serve God and money. He says you cannot. It's like oil and water. They just can't go together. You're going to be devoted to the one and not the other. It's like two competing gods for your devotion. You can't serve them both. So I ask you, in conclusion, are you making friends for yourself by investing in the kingdom of God? And I told you this earlier, I don't like talking about this, honestly. It's like my least favorite subject. But when you get to the text and you're going through a book of the Bible, it's like, oh, got to talk about it. Are you making friends for yourself by investing in the kingdom of God? Now, in the... 
last couple of months, we have had two different ministries here come and share a little bit about their ministry. We had our friends, the Beast family, who are serving in Kenya, and our friend Robin Mayoka, who is uh, building bakeries in Uganda. Both ministries are dedicated to helping children in Africa be clothed and fed and educated and discipled to know and love Jesus Christ. And this is what I think about when I read this parable. That you are giving to the work of God in the world and there are names and there are faces of people you may never even meet. And you are investing in them and you are investing that they hear the gospel and you are building up communities in various places by your giving. And there are people Maybe you sponsor children and you've never met these people. And yet there might be a day coming when you cross over from this life to the next and you are approaching the entrance into heaven and there just might be people there welcoming you in. (laughs) Friends that you have made, whether you know their names or not. And they welcome you into your eternal home. And the reason they can do that is because you took this unrighteous, temporary, quickly perishing, can't take it with you wealth, and you were shrewd with it. And you invested it wisely in your future. Let us pray. Oh, Father, may we love eternity more. May we love this life less. And may we demonstrate it regularly by where we put our money. And so, Lord, give us hearts that are generous, quick to give, where we love to Invest in making friends for ourselves through gospel ministry, through caring for orphans and widows, through building up communities around the world where Christ is proclaimed that maybe just someday we will meet some of those people we invested in and we will have everlasting joy with them in your presence. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.